Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we continue our deep dive into the world of sport betting. Beginning by discussing the differences between parimutuel wagering and betting through sports books, we then move to discuss what sport management research has taught us about sport betting, paying particular attention on how to wager your money when betting football to give yourself the best chance to beat the bookie. So, if you ever wondered what the difference between a teaser and a parlay is, or why you should always bet the home team in an NFL game when the temperature is below 22 degrees Fahrenheit, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. last episode of the podcast, we talked about the history and evolution of gambling and sport betting, paying particular attention to the view of gambling in America and some of the major laws that have governed it throughout time. Today, I want to keep going with this topic of gambling and sports betting, but instead of talking about it from a historical perspective, I want to focus on modern day sports gambling, paying particular attention to what sport management research has uncovered about trends in gambling. Before we get into what the research has to say though, I want to begin by setting the stage and talking about three different types of sport gambling. Parallel mutual odds betting, money line betting, and betting point spreads. Paramutual betting was invented in France in the 19th century by an individual named Pierre Aller. The term literally means mutual stake, and though it was first used in 1875, it really didn't gain steam and come into popularity until the 1920s and 30s when it achieved widespread use as a means to bet on horse races. Within this type of sport betting, all the money bet on the game or the race or whatever the event is, is combined into a single pool. And then from that pool, the management or the racetrack or whoever's taking the bet takes a percentage off the top called the takeout. And think of this takeout as a management fee that the people taking the bet receive. In the United States, this management fee is usually around 20% of the total pool, but the exact amount varies by state because the takeout is determined by state law. The remaining money, the other 80% or so, is then split between all the bettors who pick the correct outcome of the race or of the event, and it's divided in proportion to the individual stake each better has in the outcome. So the easiest way to think about this is to look at an example. Let's say that I go to a racetrack to bet on the horses. And for the race that I want to bet, there are 10 horses who are running. And I decide I'm not going to do any research and instead I just pick horse number 5 to win because 5 is my lucky number. I'm not a rich man, so I decide that I'm only going to bet $10 on the race. And for this particular race, let's just keep the numbers nice and round. Let's say that there's a total of $1 million bet amongst all the horses. So in other words, if we add up how much was bet on all 10 horses, the final number we get is $1 million. Now of that $1 million bet, the total amount that was bet on the horse that I bet, horse number five, 
was only $1,000. So to recap, I bet $10 on horse number five to win. There's a total of $1,000 bet on horse number five to win overall. And there's a total of $1 million that was bet on the race overall. So the horses run the race, and by some miracle, let's say my horse wins. Before the payout is calculated, the racetrack takes 20% off the top. That's their takeout. So the racetrack is going to get $200,000. The other $800,000 that was bet on all the horses to win is split between only those people who bet on horse number five, with each person getting a proportional split of the money. What do we mean by proportional? Well, I bet $10, remember, out of 1000 So I get one-tenth of the money. One-tenth of 800000 would mean that I would get $80,000 paid out to me based off of my $10 bet. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification of how this works, but it drives home the general point and hopefully helps you understand a couple of things. First, hopefully this helps you understand why the odds for horse races are always changing. If you look at the odds for the Kentucky Derby, let's say, right when the horses are announced, all those odds are are a guess by those people who are taking the bets as to what percentage of the money is going to come in on each horse. So let's say that the odds for the favorite in the Kentucky Derby next year are 5-2. to two. They set these odds right at the beginning because they're guessing that 40% of the money is going to be bet on that horse. Now, because such a large portion of the money is bet on that horse, that means your bet that you might make on that favorite receives less money in the long run or less money as the payout. So, 5 to 2 odds means that for every $5 I bet, if my horse wins, then I will get $7 back, meaning I'm going to make $2 on a $5 bet. But these are only the initial odds, and they're like we said, just a guess for what the percentage of the money is going to be bet on that particular horse. With every bet that is made, the odds change because all the odds are doing is representing the split of that money that you are going to get if you were to bet on that horse. It isn't until the final bet that is placed then that we actually know what the percentage of the total money is bet on each horse, and thus we know the final payouts are going to be if your horse wins. So, while using the parimutuel betting system can get to be somewhat complicated given that at the time of the bet you don't know exactly what the payout will be, the other two types of sport betting are much more straightforward and simplistic. With these two types of sport betting, there's a person called a bookmaker or a bookie who sets the odds, handles the bets, and issues the payouts. In states like New Jersey and Las Vegas, where sport gambling is legal, the bookmakers are actually employed by the casinos who operate sports books. In other states, there might be bookies, but they might be operating in an illegal fashion. Now, in general, the bookmaker offers a set of payoffs conditional on the results of a contest. While the payoff might change during the betting period, let's say over the course of the week before the start of an NFL game, the better is locked into their specific payoff at the time they place their bet. This marks the major difference between parimutuel betting and bookmaking. Now, another difference between the two is that in bookmaking, instead of taking a cut of all the money, 
the bookmaker charges a flat commission on each bet called the vigorish or the vig for short. Now, generally, the vig or the commission is between 4 and 5%, and this is how the bookmaker makes their money. The question you might be asking, though, is how does the sportbook or the bookie pay off the winning bets since, in parimutuel betting, the winners split all the money? Well, Fenderson, Humphreys, and Sobing point out, quote, the prevailing assumption regarding bookmakers' behaviors is prices set by the bookmaker balance the dollar value of bets on each side of the bet. Under this strategy, the bookmakers could pay the winning bets from the money collected from the losing bets. Or, in other words, the general belief has always been that the bookie sets the bets so that they have equal action on both sides of the bets. That way, you can pay the winner from the money made from the losers, with the bookie just keeping that VIG, that 4 to 5% for themselves. So, now that we understand some of the basics of bookmaking, let's talk about the two major types of bets that we can make with a sports book, money line bets and betting against the point spread. When you're betting the money line, you're merely picking which team you think will win and placing money on them. However, not all teams are created equal in a contest, so the better team, called the favorite, generally has a lower return on a wager than the worst team or the team that's called the underdog. If you're looking at this in the paper or at a sports book, the favorite is generally given minus odds and the underdog is given positive odds, with all odds being based around the notion of $100. So for example, in week one of the 2019 NFL season, the Cincinnati Bengals are playing the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle. The Seahawks are favored at negative 430 over the Bengals, who are only plus 315 to win. So what does this mean? Well, if you bet the Seahawks, it means that you have to bet $430 in order to win $100. Versus if you bet the Bengals and they win, if you bet $100, then that pays out $315. So in other words, there are 4 to 1 odds about that the Seahawks will win and 1 to 3 odds about that the Bengals will win. Now, you don't have to bet $100. You can bet whatever you want, but the payoffs are all based around these odds. So if you only bet $10 on the Seahawks and they win, then you win $2.33. So the bookmaker will give you the $10 that you laid as the bet plus your winnings of $2.33 for a total of $12.33. Likewise, if you bet only $10 on the Bengals and they won, then you would win $31.50 and the bookie would pay you that plus the $10 you laid to make the bet. So you get a total of $41.50 back. So keeping with this example, let's say you think Seattle is going to win the game, but you don't feel comfortable having to bet $430 to win. Instead of betting the money line, you could always bet the point spread. The Sport Encyclopedia defines a point spread as, quote, 
how much a favored team must win a game by for those betting on that team to collect. For example, if Team A is a 10 point favorite to defeat Team B, the better is actually betting on whether Team A will beat Team B by at least this margin. If Team A wins the game by 9 points, then those betting on Team B are winners and those picking Team A are losers. In this example, Team B has lost the game but has beat the spread. Looking at that same Seahawks-Bengals game, the Seahawks are actually favored by 10 points. This is reported as either the Seahawks minus 10 or the Bengals plus 10. An easy way to think about this is, since the Bengals are plus 10, that means after the game is over, I just add 10 points to the Bengals score. If after I do this, if after I add these 10 points in, they now have more points than Seattle, then the Bengals would win the bet. If after I add those points in, Seattle has more points still, then Seattle would win the bet. The benefit of playing the point spread is that the betting odds are much more favorable. Generally, they're around negative 105 to negative 115 for both the favorite and the underdog. So if you think that Seattle will win the game and that they will win by a lot of points, then it would make more sense to bet the point spread that way. To win $100, you would only have to lay $115 rather than having to lay $430. On the reverse side, while the payout isn't as high as the money line bet on the Bengals, if you bet the point spread and take the Bengals, you will get a 10-point cushion to play with. So if you think the Bengals have a good chance of winning or at least keeping the game close, it might make more sense to bet the point spread, which lowers the potential payout, but it makes the odds of you winning much higher. So those are the three basic ways we can bet on sports, parimutuel, money line wagers, and point spread betting. It's important to point out though, that these are not the only bets that you can make. They're just the most common. Other popular bets include over-unders, parlays, and teasers. For over-under bets, a person is wagering on if the final score of a game will be over or under a certain point total. These are popular in football, baseball, basketball, and gambling, and the odds for over and under are similar to those of point spreads and typically range from around minus 110 to minus 120. Parlays are bets that are made that combined two or more wagers into one. So for example, instead of just betting the Seahawks on the money line for week one versus the Bengals, you'd bet the Seahawks money line and you will bet that the game will go over the point total. With parlays though, in order to win the bet, you need both of these things to happen. If only one of them happens, let's say the Seahawks win, but the point total was under, then you lose the bet. Since the bet is harder to win, the payout is also greater though. So instead of getting negative 430 odds on just picking the Seahawks by the money line, or just getting negative 110 odds on the over, you actually would get plus 135 odds on both of the things happening. This plus 135 is just a combination of those other two odds combined into a singular bet. So the appeal of betting parlays is while you make a bet harder to win, you increase what the payout is. And you'll actually win more if you bet a parlay than if you were just to bet the two individual bets independent of each other. One quick point about parlays is that they don't have to be combining a money line with an over or under bet. You can, depending on the bookie, combine anything you want. So, 
for football season, it's not unpopular for people to do a three-team parlay where they're picking three money line winners of three different games, normally picking the teams that are really big favorites and then just combining them all into one bet. Finally, that brings us to teasers, which are really the most popular with football. A teaser is like a parlay in that you're choosing two or more outcomes that all have to happen in order for the bet to win, but they are different in that you can only use point spreads and over-unders. And the reason for this is that with a teaser, you're actually teasing points and changing the spread or the over-under for each game that's involved in the bet. The amount of points you tease determines what the odds are on the bet. So for NFL games, for example, it's common to do a three-team 10-point teaser. This means that there are three games that you choose, and the spread of each game changes by 10 points. So if you pick Seattle to win as part of this three-team 10-point teaser, that means the point spread would change by 10 points. So we would go through and we would add 10 points to the spread for Seattle, which, if you recall, they were negative 10. So we add 10 to that, so now the point spread is zero. That means for me to win this game in my teaser, all I need Seattle to do is to win the game. Just like a parlay, I need each of those three games that are in the teaser to win in order for me to win the bet. But because I'm changing the odds of me winning by messing with that spread, the odds of the bet also change. So the odds of the bet depend on how many teams that I have in the teaser and how many points that I'm changing these bets by. For the NFL, a three-team 10-point teaser, the odds are negative 130. But for a three-team 7-point teaser, the odds are actually plus 135. So we can see, again, how these are popular. If I'm very sure that Seattle's going to win, but I don't want to lay the 10 points, I can put them in a tease, change that line to increase the odds of me winning that individual game and hopefully the other two games I throw in there as well. So now that we understand the types of betting and how odds work and some of the basic terminology, I want to spend the last part of the podcast talking about what sport management and sport economics research can teach us about how to bet, when to bet, and where to bet your money to come out victorious. One of the caveats, though, before I get into that, I'm in no way telling you that you should bet or how you should bet money if you choose to. All I'm doing is telling you what years of analysis and research has unearthed and hopefully helping to show you just how research analysis can be applied to this section of the sport industry. So with that being said, there are a few things we have to understand before we can get into talking about strategies. The first of which is we need to understand how the VIG affects betting. A scholar named Borges did well in describing this and referencing some of the previously fundamentals of bookmaking that we already discussed and saying, quote, In point spread betting, the role of the bookmaker or the casino is in many ways similar to that of a stock exchange specialist. Both charge fees for matching buyers and sellers. The bookmaker's profits come from the commission called the VIG. Betters decide which team to bet on and receive $10 for every $11 wager to win. This is that 4-5% to commission that we talked about. The portion of the loser's bet that is not paid to the winner is the bookmaker's VIG. So, while the discovery of any betting strategy that produces a win rate greater than 50% provides evidence that a betting market is statistically ineffective, 
a win rate greater than 52.38% must be surpassed to claim economic inefficiency. So Borges points out a few things here that you have to remember when we're talking about betting strategies. The first is how to make money, and the second is how we have to think about the bookmaker in order to make money. Let's deal with the first thing because that's pretty simple. What he tells us is we have to win 52.38% of our bets. This is important because oftentimes a casual better either forgets this or they have no knowledge of this. And as a result, they let emotions dictate what they do. So if you're an emotional better, if you don't have much experience and you lose a bet or two bets, oftentimes those individuals will go on what we call tilt and they'll start betting more and more money on more and more games to try to win back that money that they've lost. But if you know that overall your goal is just to win 53% of your bets, you can keep your emotion in check and hopefully not let a few losses affect you and make you chase money. So that's an important point that he makes. And it's not just him that has uncovered this. This is something that is mentioned over and over and over again in sport economics and sport management research on gambling. The second point he makes deals with how we have to think about the bookmaker. What he notes is we really need to think about the bookmaker as a stockbroker and think of betting just like we think about playing the stock market. The stockbroker isn't making money just on if the stock goes up or down. They're making money by charging fees for buying and selling stocks. In the same way, the bookmaker isn't just making money for a team winning or losing. They're making money from the VIG. This has actually led to something called the balanced book assumption in bookmaking. And as the theory states, quote, the prevailing assumption regarding bookmakers' behavior was prices set by the bookmakers balance the dollar value of bets on both sides. Under this strategy, the bookmaker could pay the winning bets from the money collected from the losing bets. And while this may be the case in certain circumstances, in 2004, a scholar named Levitt found in research that the bookmakers actually take a position regarding the outcome of the match and try to exploit bettors' biases. So instead of saying the lines that the bookmaker would have an equal money on both sides, the bookmaker through their own research and understanding of trends and understanding of how people bet, they try to take advantage of the better. And based on the better's own bias, they try to set the line or the odds to influence the better in how they bet so that they can make the most money possible. So how does this help us? Well, knowing that the bookmaker is doing this, we can actually perform our own research to see what information bookmakers are using to set the lines and see if that leads to any trends that we can then exploit. How do we do this? Well, a scholar named Coleman suggested we begin by looking for market inefficiencies. As he says, quote, Market efficiency is appropriately tested only by examining the relationship between the betting line and whether a team covers the spread, or similarly by examining the relationship between the over and under and whether the point total is on a particular side of it. If the market is efficient, that is, the market fully possesses all available information, there should be no factors that are related to whether a team covers the spread or not. This would include the betting line itself, as it is essentially netted out in the process of making a binary determination of whether a team covered. In other words, if the bookmakers are setting the line in the over-under right, 
there should be no factors that we can find that are related to if a team covers the spread or hits an over or under. So if we can identify any factors that are affecting the spread and causing it to be too high or too low, then we can say that the bookmaker is not being efficient with how they set the line, thus leaving themselves open to potential losses. We can take advantage of those by accounting for them when we make a bet. So that is exactly what academics have done. They have tested numerous variables to see what is actually affecting the lines. Now, I'm going to spare you the methodology that they use in these papers, but generally speaking, what they look for are factors that create what's called investor sentiment. Investor sentiment is something discussed a lot in the stock market literature and occurs when the actual price of a financial asset differs from the price that would be expected based on the present discounted value of future cash flow generated by financial assets. So to, to simplify that, investor sentiment is when the price you buy a stock at is different from the expected price of the stock due to some type of bias that you might have. So for example, if you're willing to pay $1,000 for a share of Nike stock when it is only believed to be valued at $900 a share just because you like Nike and because it's a popular name in the sporting world, then you are letting sentiment bias affect how you are investing your money. In sports betting, bookmakers would then use this knowledge of sentiment bias to adjust the over-under or the point spread or change the money line odds. For example, scholars have found that people are more likely to bet on glamorous NFL teams. Knowing this, bookmakers were found to adjust the point spreads and money line odds to make the glamorous teams either bigger favorites or less of an underdog. Even though the bookies did this, the general public was still found to be inclined to bet on a glamorous team, which meant that the people were willing to pay more money than the bet was worth. They're willing to take worse odds just so they can bet on that well-known team. Not surprisingly, two researchers named Avery and Shavir were able to show that when people bet on glamorous teams in the NFL, they suffered abnormally large losses in money, meaning they lost way more than the one. The lesson here, be very careful when you're betting a big-name team like the Cowboys or the Patriots or the Chiefs because the bookmaker has adjusted the spread to account for how popular the team is. And they've done that regardless of what the statistics say the potential outcome or probable outcome of that game is. Now, how glamorous a team is, is not the only thing that we can talk about. It's really just the tip of the iceberg when we're discussing what might bias betters and thus affect how the point spread money line and the over-under of the game are set. Another group of scholars named Fenderson, Humphreys, and Sobing note, quote, The key decision for empirical research on sentiment bias involves identifying observable factors that can be plausibly linked to the presence of some bettors with sentiment in the market. So Avery and Chavelle found expert opinions, the performance of teams in the previous years, and what conference the NFL teams were in all affected how people wagered on games. Specifically, they found betters bet on a team that made the playoffs the year before, bet against teams that finished in last place the year before, and were more likely to bet on teams in the NFC over the AFC. Now, bookmakers know this, and they adjust the point spreads to make them 
bigger favorites, which in turn makes the bookmakers more likely to win. But this actually gives the professional or skill better that knows this the advantage. Because if we know that the bookmaker is going to adjust the point spread to make a team that didn't make the playoffs a bigger underdog than they should be according to the stats, then I can just bet the underdog knowing that I'm actually getting better value because I'm getting additional points to play with. So that means according to this study, I should bet against teams that made the playoffs last year, especially when they're playing teams that didn't make the playoffs. The study also found that there was more sentiment bias in the closing line than the opening. So something I don't know that I pointed out yet, but the line or the point spread can and oftentimes does change over the course of the week. But Remember, as we said, I get the point spread at the time that I make the bet. So let's say that the line opens at plus nine, and then over the course of the week, it slowly changes all the way to Sunday when it closes at plus 8.5. I still get that plus nine because that is what the odds were when I made my bet. So this means it's more profitable for me to bet against a closing line than it is to bet against the opening line because as more and more people bet money, more and more sediment comes in. They bet that glamorous teams, which causes the bookmaker to adjust the point spread. In addition to this research, in 2011, a study by Frank et al. found that the day of the week of the NFL game actually affected the point spread and the money line. What they hypothesized was that the reason behind this was there were a greater number of casual bettors on the weekends versus during the week. So bookmakers adjust the line on the weekends more to take advantage of that casual better who might not be aware of some of these factors that are affecting lines. So the lesson here is if you're a casual better, it actually should be more wary of, be, of betting the weekend games than just betting a weekday game because the lines have been adjusted for that weekend game more to account for your lack of experience. Temperature has also been found to have an effect on how bettors act. As Borges found in a study of the NFL, people tend to think the home team in hot games has less of an advantage over an away team, so they are more likely to abet the away team. This was seen in the fact that the point spread for the hottest games of the year was 2.5 points at the close, while the point spread for a home team during an average temperature game was 2.72 points at the close. So betting on the home teams in these hottest games even with the lower line, was found to only result in a win rate of 47.22%, meaning that the home team in the hottest games only won 47% of the time. Why do I mention the percentage? Because remember, we said in order to be a winning gambler, we have to win 53% of our bets. And if the home team in these hottest games is only beating the spread 47% of the time, that means it's not smart to bet that home team in the hottest games because in the end, we're going to lose money. So be wary of betting a home team on an especially hot day. Now, on the other hand, the same study found that for the coldest games, the home team is actually expected to win by a larger margin and they actually do. So for the coldest games, the home team was favored on average by 3.27 points versus that 2.72 points of an average temperature. So the line was affected by the weather. When it's the colder games, the home team is favored by an additional half point. But 
even with that higher line, home teams won those coldest games by an average of 6.27 points, well above what the spread was of 3.27. So if a better were to just bet on the home team versus the spread for the coldest games of the year, which in this study says any game where the temperature is below 22.82 degrees Fahrenheit, if they did that, they would win 56.48% of the time, which is well above that 53% you need to actually make money. The lesson here is be wary of betting a home team during hot weather, but when the weather is cold, you should bet the home team because they're going to win statistically at a higher rate than average. In college football, the research paints a slightly different story in large part because there's a big difference oftentimes in the ability level of the opponents. As a result, there are oftentimes a lot of big money line favorites defined as teams that are favored by 18 or more points. With the line being so big, researchers found that people oftentimes were afraid to bet that big favorite. And so it led to something called the reverse favorite long shot bias, meaning that people were found to bet the long shot or the underdog at a very high rate. But interestingly, the research actually showed that the line was so high because the bookmaker were actually accounting for this bias. So in other words, the bookmakers were winning a majority of these bets. So that means that you should stay away from betting college football with big favorites because over time, you're not going to be able to win at that 53% clip. One piece of sentiment bias that did bring about a bias in betting on college football that could be exploited by the bettors is the travel of the away team. A study by an individual named Coleman in 2017 found, quote, the betting line underestimates the effect of eastwardly time zone travel on visiting underdogs, i.e. when the home team is the favorite. And crossing one time zone east costs such visitors just over a field goal over and above the score difference that would be expected, given the betting line and the other travel effects. Moreover, crossing two time zones to the east is also weakly significant. Its coefficient indicates that such travel costs an estimated 8.53 points, or well over a touchdown. So what does this mean? Well, when a team has to travel east one time zone, they perform worse than the market expects. Or, in other words, they perform worse than the line says that they should. Thus, in these scenarios, you should bet the home team. However, this only really holds for the first half of the season. So, the general rule of thumb for college football is you bet the home team over the first half of the season when the team is a favorite, they win around 57% of the time, and the away team is traveling one or more time zones to the east. The only time you need to be wary of this, though, is when you have a team that is a big favorite, 18 points or more. And you need to be worried about if a team is traveling two time zones because the winning percentage then actually drops closer to that 53% down from that 57 So in the end... Just like investors research the stock market, bettors, bookmakers, and sport management scholars have looked into a plethora of factors that affect the sport books and the odds that we place on games and found some market inefficiencies that can be exploited. 
Outside the ones that we talked about here, how in the NFL you don't want to bet the home team in the hottest games, but that you should bet the home team in the coldest games, and how we should always be wary of betting on the glamorous team that made the playoffs a year before when they're playing a team that didn't make the playoffs, or how in college you want to make sure to bet the home team when they're favored by less than 18 points in playing a team that had to travel eastward one time zone. So just like we talked about those, outside of this advice, there are numerous other studies which speak to these and other sports and other variables as well. For example, other variables like the popularity of a team, the hot hand buys, changes in elevation, distance traveled, and national settlement have all been studied in football as well as other sports like baseball, basketball, and soccer. However, that's a topic for another day. Hopefully, today, we have been able to not only teach you about the various ways sports betting works, but also shine a little bit of light on how sports scholars go about researching it and applying what they learn into the real world in sports betting. If you have any questions about the topics that we cover today, or anything else to do with gambling and sports betting, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Follow us and stay up to date on new podcasts and get some behind-the-scenes pictures of podcasting and learn about the podcasting process as well as about sport recreation and how we go about managing those industries. Also, if you like this podcast and you haven't listened to part one of our gambling podcast on the history and evolution of sport betting and gambling, go on iTunes and Spotify and give it a listen. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.